Hello, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. I wanted to say something before the episode begins. The following interview was recorded the day after George Floyd was killed by a police officer in Minneapolis, Minnesota. As we all know, this has sparked people to come together to bring a deeper awareness, call to action, justice, and reform. In this episode, I brought up a question about coping with the pandemic, but there was certainly more than that going on, as we all know. So let's stay safe out there and keep each other safe. I stand with you in solidarity. Thanks to you. Stay safe, smart, and steadfast. And keep this tough conversation going. Check, check. David T. Miller, folks. Loading artists. Audio inside. Loading artists. Audio inside. Oh, it's Artcast, it's Artcast, it's Artcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen by your easel, maybe you can grab a chair. Or even take it with you like you ain't got no care. Loading artists. Audio inside. Loading artists. Audio inside. So sit back and relax and grab your headphones too. Adjust your volume, it's hotcast. Philip J. Mellon welcomes you. So sit back. Oh yeah, it's Artcast. Loading artists. Audio inside. Loading artists. Audio inside. Hey, and welcome to Artcast. Be sure to check out the artist's websites or artcast.com and check out the work and links. All right, let's get started. This episode's guest is Nashville, Tennessee-based artist Amelia Briggs. Amelia's work brings to mind a few words for words of the day, which include wonky, identity, mirror, and color, just to name a few. Amelia shares what it's like to make paintings and drawings as a child and to work in the moment then and now. Some highlights for sure will be that I invited artist Jamie Hart to send me a few questions for Amelia. Thanks, Jamie. And also the quote she shares from the book Evocative Objects by Sherry Turkle. Stay tuned. I had like a really nice morning, like looking at your work online and just kind of like starting it that way, which is always fun to have some time beforehand. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say thank you for having me. I'm excited to to be on. Oh, no problem. Thanks for being the guest because I've actually followed your work for a while. So. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. It was awesome. nice to connect on, on Instagram. I think it's where it originally happened. Yeah. So I was curious, like, 
how have you been scheduling time these days? And if you if you don't have a lot of time, would you sketch to get something sort of to build off later? Yeah, I have been doing a great deal of drawing, but if anything, I think I've had maybe more time in the studio, at least um, for the bulk of the pandemic. I was lucky to still have access to my studio because it's isolated. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't working. I normally work four days a week. And so I wasn't working. I was working from home and it kind of freed up my schedule a little bit. So I was able to get a lot done. So I've actually been very active in the studio, luckily. Um, but in times when I'm not at the studio, I have been doing a lot of planning and sketching, which helps me generate ideas for new pieces. Yeah. I imagine that must be helpful just to kind of not get clogged up or and fall into maybe a creative block or anything, huh? Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm always carrying around a sketchbook and just jotting down ideas and drawing. It might be interesting to just bring up your coloring pages. Yeah. So those come directly from my drawing. And I, it's, I've been told many times by people that my work, I should make a coloring book, which I might do at some point. Um, but in, I guess before I did that, I thought it would be fun to just like put up some that people could download for free. Um, so it was fun to see people doing that and then sending me pictures of them colored in. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Do you post any of those, uh, examples of other people coloring the pages? I did in my Instagram story. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. That's cool. I'm trying to think, like you mentioned the COVID-19 situation, this sort of like quarantine and, uh, social distancing during this situation like I was wondering how you were managing and sort of coping I guess as far as like your like work and life yeah I've really just honestly been trying to just dig into the studio I think that helps me a lot deal with anxiety it makes me feel more in control when you know at the at the least I'm getting work done it just makes me feel better um so I've been lucky with that and my studio is isolated. I know a lot of artists who haven't even had access to their studio. So I feel really lucky to still be able to go. Um, but I did go through like a weird kind of transition because right before the pandemic hit, I was really in crunch, major crunch time because I was preparing for two exhibitions where I was going to need, you know, some decent, um, a decent amount of work. And it was kind of like a real quick switch where I got emails saying that, you know, they were both postponed till 2021. And so I'm so used to having to make the most out of every minute in the studio because I've always worked a job. Yeah. And so it was like this really strange moment of like, what do I do now kind of thing. Um, so I just kind of would re really kind of force myself to just kind of pause in the studio and just kind of spend time there without having to make the most out of every minute, which has been really nice. It's made me think a little bit differently about my work and maybe able to slow down a little bit and plan a little bit better for future pieces, which has been nice. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. It seems like your work, I, now I wonder the, the sort of the making of them and however that happens is, seems to be kind of slow, even though maybe the color and sort of the materials might suggest otherwise, like sort of a, a pop type thing. But like I imagine the assembly must be kind of slow or at least is that benefiting from what's happening now? Is that, is that kind of like what you were getting at? Yeah, a little bit. They are slow. I mean, once they're built, I have to coat them with so many layers of paint. And that takes a long time, you know, to build up that many layers of paint and, and paper mache as well. And so um, it's nice, yeah, to just kind of have things sitting that I can go to and just coat 
Um, I usually have to have many pieces in the works at once. Otherwise I would work just way too slow. I was wondering if you could share some of your like early art making memories or projects. Yeah. My dad is an artist. And so I grew up around a lot of art supplies. And so I think I remember I have memories of going, we had a big basement and it was unfinished and there was this like studio room that my dad had. And I have a lot of memories going in there and just playing with his paints. And eventually I started painting a lot of um, like self portraits and I was really into painting flowers when I was younger. I also loved coloring. I mean, that seems silly to say because what child doesn't love coloring, but I remember going to my grandparents' house and just having, you know, stacks and stacks of coloring books and just getting lost and doing that for hours on end. Um, but yeah, a lot of, a lot of painting and tinkering with my dad's supplies when I was little. A few parts of this question, it kind of relates, I think in some way. And I was just wondering if in the process, if you might consider it research to investigate that, what you're interested in and to bring your findings to the visual slash sculptural realm, or is it a bit more automatic and organic and say like as a child, do you think it was any more automatic or, or less automatic? than it is now I think as a child I was definitely kind of mimicking what I was looking at or what I was thinking about you know I would look at pictures of flowers sometimes I would go to like a craft store and buy fake flowers and I would paint those um, so I was very much kind of mimicking that I think it it took a while for my process to get more intuitive and get more about process you know I definitely kind of just try to remain very open as open as possible when I'm in the studio I, I usually have you know a somewhat of a sense of where the piece is going but I really just try to respond in the moment yeah um so yeah that has changed quite a bit so would you say now it's um you're trying to maintain some of the moment involved yeah yeah definitely yeah. that's cool and I'm not representing anything specific necessarily I mean there's I have lots of influences that I'm looking at you know but I'm not trying to mimic any one particular object. I definitely want to maintain a sense of mystery with the work so you're not really sure what, what it is that you're looking at. Yeah. That's cool. It keeps some of the magic there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In these groups of questions in the beginning, I wanted to ask you if, uh, what feeds your work most. Would you say memory, something in the present, or plans for pieces you have yet to make? I think... You know, my memory does play a role in my work. I'm I'm a child of the 90s, so I'm very drawn to, like, the colors and the toys of the 90s and, like, just the whole kind of style of the 90s. And I look at imagery online a lot from that. Um, but I also, you know, Instagram is an incredible tool. I get a lot of inspiration from Instagram. I follow a lot of really great artists on there. Um, and then I think I just kind of culminate all of that and then just do a lot of sketches. And so it's hard to know exactly where sometimes my sources are coming from, but I also do a lot of studying of kind of vintage children's toys and children's toys from the nineties. Um, I like looking at toys and sometimes even like contemporary toys that are heavily designed. I find those fascinating. Yeah. I actually had, uh, an artist friend of mine, Jamie Hart. Uh, I had asked him to come up with a couple of questions you know, leading up to this interview for, you know, for you and your process, uh, based on his work. And I, I thought it'd be interesting to bring his point of view in. So yeah, if you don't mind, I'll ask his questions. No, not at all. I like his work. 
Oh, cool. You know him. Yeah, I think I follow him on Instagram. Oh, cool. Yeah. All right, so here we go. So where does the decision-making come from when choosing a color for an object? How is a decision made for an object to be monochromatic or two-color or more than that? And is that process more fluid than specifically made decision? It's it's really kind of in the moment. I think I think for a while I tried to pull away from doing the gradients because when I do the gradients, I use oil. Okay. And until I moved into a larger studio space, I started to worry about the toxic, you know, nature of oil paint. Um, but, and I also, at one point, I think I had left one cause I coat it with latex paint, you know, this like plasticky paint. And I think at one point I had left one and I think it occurred to me that maybe I should simplify that. So I started leaving them just with the plastic kind of one color. And I liked that. And then it also freed me from having to use oil paint, but I have since kind of gone back a little bit into using that the gradients and it's really just dependent on the piece and kind of my feeling of it. Some pieces feel more complicated and it feels like it needs to just be one color or it can hold up on its own with just one color. And then others, I think sometimes I feel like they need a little bit more. And then that's when I introduce a gradient or sometimes I just really want to get my hands on some oil paint. I mean, I was trained as a representational painter and I painted figures for a long time. So I loved rendering. And I think that my love of rendering and, and mixing oil paints, you know, creeps back into my sculpture now. <laughs> I think yeah, that's, that's cool. Exactly it comes from. Yeah, it's like it's just a whole new dynamic, like along with different material. I mean, say fur and, you know, um, the the other forms and that. Yeah. I was wondering, how do you think scale affects the work? And also, like, I was interested in venue, like online versus in person or a book based on your other work. And how do you take those things into account while working? Or is it more organic? I mean, scale is very important to my work. I, it's hard to capture that sometimes in, you know, in photos. And I think that's one of the downsides of, of Instagram. I mean, I love Instagram, but it, it's hard to capture that. I really try to make my scale kind of absurd or just really kind of confrontational to the viewer, like playing with that a lot. Um, so I do think about that a lot when I'm like cutting the shape of my pieces and I'm beginning to build them. Um, but I do, I, I guess I'm lucky in the sense that my work translates fairly well to Instagram, you know, it, it photographs fairly well for the most part. And that yeah. I realize artists have that experience. Um, so that's just a luck of the draw, I guess, but I do prefer for my work to be viewed in person because I do think the scale and just having the presence of it in a room makes a big difference. Yeah. It's like almost like you're on a set or something for a TV show. Yeah. With the yeah. different characters and what have you. Yeah. And I do think of them as characters, you know, I mean, not in any kind of specific way, but I like to think of them as like these weird characters or like, I don't know things that you may have had a companionship with when you were a child or something, or that kind of link to that yeah. feeling. I was curious, what was the most experimental thing you've done to a piece? You know, I was thinking about that question and I wish I had something really crazy to share. But I, don't. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I guess the things that I felt like I was being really experimental probably wouldn't be considered so to other people, but um, I had a show in Chattanooga with, my studio mate and I remember I went to like uh, I think it was bargain hunt or something and I bought one of those giant like obnoxiously giant pink stuffed unicorns okay 
and I cut the limbs off and I sewed them together and made this kind of weird tripod. And I remember I felt really experimental when I did that, even though it doesn't now looking back, it doesn't seem that experimental. But to me, I felt like I was being, I guess I was really out of my comfort zone in making because I didn't coat it with paint or anything. It was just these legs sewn together. Yeah. I think, <laughs> um, I mean, coming from my point of view or maybe others that don't actually make work like that at all, like that would seem kind of experimental or haven't seen such things. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Just <laughs> How often are you su surprised by your own work? Um, that's always such a great feeling. Um, I try to be surprised all the time, but unfortunately that's not always the case. Um, sometimes like when I'm finishing a piece, I'm, I'm living with it lying flat in front of me, you know, for a really long time. And then sometimes yeah. it's a really great feeling when I pop it up on the wall and I'm really, usually the scale is what really surprises me um, that I get really excited about when I, just the presence of it in the room and realizing how big it is or how strange the scale feels that, you know, the stranger the scale, the better in my mind. And so that's usually how I get surprised by work is just kind of living with it, sitting in the space. And I usually know I'm, I hit something if I just feel really struck by it, or I could just sense like a presence from it. Yeah. I was wondering if you can use three to five words to describe your work. Yes. So I've been thinking a lot about the word uncanny. Okay. Um, so I would say uncanny, um, puffy, which is pretty obvious, and whimsical. Cool. Yeah. What Do you have words? I do. <laughs> and I, I love doing this, so I can't hide it. <laughs> yeah. I've been listening to a lot of like your most recent podcasts the last couple of days. And I, I love the part where you guys exchange the words. <laughs> oh, cool. Well, thank you. That's great. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I prepare by looking at the work for these interviews. I generally don't read the artist statement or anything usually related to that. Um, Cause I kind of want to have, even if it's redundant, like what somebody else says, like it's that's okay as long as I don't know what it is and it doesn't you know sort of taint what I how I see it. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. It so, does. um, but I couldn't help but read that sort of paragraph you had up about your current show, um, the the online show, and I'm gonna probably butcher the name, but Eve Lieb Gallery. Yeah. Yeah. And you have it on your website, and it's also on their website, but. I, I just think it's interesting how some of these words seem to be coming up um, again from different sources, you know? Mm -hmm. So I felt like it, as a result of that, anyway, here's my words. <laughs> <laughs> Possibility, which I find that is coming from different sources too, so that was cool. Mm -hmm. um, but one that I thought of was um, body language. Yeah. They have like sort of a lean, some of them, and like this gesture, you know, overall. Huh, yeah. As if we were looking at a figure or anything really that moves, you know. Uh-huh. Um, nod to, and that was like also as a result of looking at different sources for, you know, people or yourself talking about your work and and how there isn't, it doesn't appear, and I think you've you've alluded to that, that there isn't like a sp very specific narrative involved, even though there, there is, because based on like your association or feeling from it. So, so the nod is that kind of like, to me, that unspoken thing, like, Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Without this sort of 
being able to translate it into any any language, like spoken language, I guess you mm-hmm. could say. So, and then following that, there's the narrative, which you know relates to the nod and I guess what you're doing visually. Yeah, those so. are great. I feel like your words are better than my words. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> those are great. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean it's a lot of fun, and you know, um, I always like to. That's like one of my favorite questions. It's probably all how I always introduce it that way. <laughs> it's like I'm yeah. waiting for it, you know. <laughs> but so I'm gonna actually read one of Jamie's questions now because I felt yeah. it fit after that. So, so he was asking, what is the relationship of the part object in parentheses to the whole body of work, driving force, force, excuse me, or deep content? Is it something familial, language, or system oriented, growing? If parts are s- serving a whole or some grand narrative, and what is the narrative? And is the narrative the dri- the driving process, or is the process driving the narrative? That was a lot. So. <laughs> I think you're going to have to remind me if I leave one of those out, but I think, so definitely the process is driving the narrative for one. Um, I don't have like a grand plan and then execute it. I'm definitely just trying to work through a process and then I can kind of step back and piece things together and say these work together or they don't work together. Um, I do feel like each piece is pretty autonomous for the most part, you know, obviously when I'm working towards specific show, I'm thinking about how pieces are going to work together. But even then, I'm, I try to let each piece be what it's going to be and then can kind of step back. Um, but I, I try not to think about, like, research or making any kind of a plan as I'm beginning. I just try to just go into this kind of state of just trying to be open to letting what happens. And that's how I, I think I can make my work move forward. Um, so the process is very important. Um, I feel like I left off part of that question. I think you answered a lot of it. Maybe some of it was like the, to talk about it being familial or is there a language or system oriented or is there a growing, like, I guess he means possibly like organically. I think organically. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely typing, tapping into a very kind of specific language or visual language, you know, um, but I think sometimes I do that without even realizing it because I'm just so entrenched in that way of making and, and the visuals that I've been drawn to and that I've been making for a while now. Um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting like- to think about a series when thinking about your work, you know, because it's, I mean, in painting, it, I don't know, maybe because I paint mostly, like it's really almost all I do, <laughs> some collage, yeah. but it, it's easier to, to wrap that word up with painting for me. Yeah. Then I think it's it's easy to get wrapped up and say that you can almost kill some of the personality variant between each piece with with the way I look at it. And that's that's kind of that can cause a creative block for me. And it sounds like you, you deal with that pretty well organically. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think when it comes down to like series or like trying to pick certain works if, when there's a very specific show happening, a lot of that I think comes down to the final decisions, which is always color and, and texture. Oh, cool. Um, and that's kind of how sometimes in my mind I will, you know, quote unquote, marry certain pieces together that I think for a show is like I'll make certain color decisions for that. And that's, you know, the, the last step kind of in the process. Nice. 
So I have one more Jamie Hart question. Okay. Okay. Um, so he is asking, what is significant to you about an object that sits in the space of a painting that you keep returning to or larger? What do you feel is the reason we continually return to the painted object as lookers? Just, you mean in general? Yeah, it sounds like, um, you know, of course we, he, we exchange these over email, but, um, it, it, it seems as though he's asking, why do we return to painted objects and maybe from the viewer's point of view, because he mentions lookers mm -hmm. and possibly what is the inspiration for doing that? My inspiration or like in general, what I think. It sounds like he's like saying in general, like maybe other people that, that, that look at work. Yeah. Okay. And like you as say, for lack of a better term, a fan. I think that's hard. I think there's so much history wrapped up in that and yeah. uh, maybe like a certain comfort. Um, that's an interesting question though. Yeah, it is. It, it sort of turns it around, right? Yeah. Seems that way. That's pretty cool. Um, and it, it was interesting because he asked it in that way. And I had like a three-parter for myself. I don't know where it went at this point, but I, but I thought about like, why, like for you, like in your process and your objects, like why, why paint and why plastic and what, what keeps you coming back to that? You know, I've asked myself that question so many times, like, why am I drawn to this kind of visual realm, you know? And I think, I don't know that I'm so drawn to like plasticky, cheap looking children's toys. Like I was driving to my studio the other day and I saw this half inflated neon pink inflatable pool sitting in someone's yard. And I was just like so enamored with it. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to like pull over and start photographing it, but I thought that people would get really freaked out. Yeah. Um, I don't know why I'm drawn to that. You know, I don't have children. Um, I wasn't particularly drawn to that when I was a child. I think there's something about it for me that has to do with identity. I think I've always been fascinated with like how a person builds an, an identity and how visual cues can point someone in a certain way of thinking about an object or thinking about a person and how we all present certain visual cues. I think I've always been fascinated with that. And I think there's something about childhood that I find fascinating about a really important time of when we start to develop our identity and our sense of self and just what we are visually attracted to our own kind of aesthetic. Yeah. Um, and I think I'm trying to get tap into that. I think I'm trying to tap into this kind of magical time. I mean, obviously childhood is not magical for everyone, but this space of like when you're, you're the most open and I think, I think I heard a quote somewhere and I need to find the specific one where like the first three or something years of a child is like the most important. Cause that's when you kind of start to solidify your, your personality or maybe it's five years. Um, I just find that fascinating yeah. that we don't really have any control at that time, but we're, we're developing our sense of self without realizing it. Yeah. I wonder if that sort of not like not awareness or un unawareness is like kind of key. And, you know, like maybe as an adult, you would decide against that, you know, and like not let it happen. Yeah. If yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, it's also, it also, yeah, it's fascinating and it's also terrifying to think that we don't have any control at that time, but like we're just basically. Hey, listeners, that was a drop in the call. Sorry about that. 
there's one more coming up. Just wanted to give you a heads up. And Amelia and I do our best to get back on track. Thanks for your patience. I think that's fascinating to me and also kind of scary to imagine, you know, like during that, that very important time, you know, we don't have any kind of control yeah, over yeah. the forces. Um, and I do think about that a lot. So I think that is kind of ultimately probably on some level why I'm drawn to this imagery and why thinking about just the visuals that kind of associate to that time in my mind. Cool. I don't know if you mentioned uh, object outside of what you make or but when you were talking about, uh, I think, scale and, you know, maybe how do they relate to now? Like, how come you're pulling f from your childhood? Uh, and I was wondering, like, some of them, a lot of them use mirrors, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. Or reflective surfaces, like surrounded by fur or, you know, whether it's the, the, the other materials that you painted. Yeah. And that's, is that, am I right? I mean, I know some of them have mirrors and there's others with just like a sheet of uh, acid, not acetate, but like plexi. Um, no, they all, any that look like that, they're either an acrylic mirror, like a colored acrylic mirror or a glass okay. mirror, depending. Yeah. Okay. And I didn't know if you were thinking at all, um, like television screens or. You know, I only recently introduced mirrors into my work. And so I'm still, I think, trying to wrap my head around what I'm trying to say with that. I think. When I first introduced Amir into my work, I was thinking a lot about um, the problematic nature of a lot of toys that are geared towards young girls, you know, like pretty, pretty princess mirrors and, you know, games like that or little like makeup sets that they sell. And um, I find a lot of that to be problematic, but, you know, I used a lot of that stuff when I was a kid and I was drawn to that stuff. I'm still visually <laughs> very drawn to that. I had yeah. a game called Pretty Pretty Princess when I was a little girl and I have memories of those objects in the game a lot and so I, I for a little while now I've been thinking a lot about trying to create this kind of obnoxiously cute obnoxiously overly feminine trying you know kind of thing that would be geared towards a girl but not point too closely to it and I think that's when I started playing with me hey that was the last of the call drops sorry about that we pick up the conversation with Amelia and I talking more about the mirrors in her work. Um, th and this is this may just be for me because I, you know, I was thinking about the the television screen or some of them like looking like a screen of some kind, where like I, speaking of toys like video games or what have you, like a Game Boy or old iPods or like and just sort of covering them with fur. Like um, I don't know if that's like at all makes sense to you or. It does. I think I think of them, at least as of now, like I said, I haven't been working with them that long, but yeah. I think in the beginning when I was working with them, I was thinking about them just as a mirror and I was thinking about reflection and kind of these like almost fleshy when I'm not using fur, you know, like these kind of bulbous forms and then having these kind of small reflective surfaces. And I was thinking a lot about like how we can have a skewed idea of our image or I was thinking maybe about body issues or insecurity. I think that's kind of what I was thinking about in the beginning, but I don't know. I'm interested to see where the mirrors go and how that work kind of progresses. Cause it still feels really new. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, I don't mean to like in enforce the technology side in there. <laughs> I think that is interesting though, because I do think about the visuals of video games a lot, especially when I'm drawing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know. We'll see.
which deceased artist would you have liked to have spoken with and what would you talk to them about? This was kind of hard, but I ultimately went with um, Eva Hesse. I think that's how you pronounce her last name, right? Hesse? Uh, I think pe- most people say Hess, but I don't. I'm not I an used- authority, yeah. Yeah, I used to say Hess, and someone corrected me once, but who knows? Oh, really? So Eva <laughs> I Hesse- think there might be like a little inflection at the e on the e at the end, but I don't. I don't know that like I can do that correctly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I'm sure people know who I'm talking about. Um, yeah. But I think I would want to talk to her. Um, I'm fascinated by her. And of course, she died very young, which is very sad. Um, But I think I would want to ask her kind of what she would have done differently, Um, maybe knowing that she had limited time and then maybe what she would be doing now. I'm very very interested in her work. I wonder if she ever knew that the material she was using was so were so uh, dangerous, for lack of a better word, you know, I know. Yeah, which is, which is just so tragic. Yeah. Um, yeah. But on a lighter note, <laughs> you love yeah. her work. <laughs> I do love her work. I'm very drawn to her work. There's a great documentary about her on, I think it's PBS, which is really insightful about her her life. I was wondering if you listen to music at all while you're working. I don't. I tend to gravitate towards podcasts or audiobooks. Um okay. I love listening to podcasts, especially listening to artists talk about their work, unless I'm in a mindset where I just kind of want to not think about the contemporary art world. <laughs> right. Um, you know, but for the most part, I find it really inspiring to just listen to podcasts like yours or like the, the Artist Conversation podcast. Um, I used to listen to Bad at Sports a lot. Um, I just like listening to artists just discuss their process. I find that to be the most inspirational in the studio. That's cool. Yeah, I I, I feel like... Actually, personally, when I listen to podcasts, I actually sit at my computer. <laughs> really? Like, I can't multitask very well. So if I'm painting, I, I'm it. It would be background noise anyway. Like if I were listening to a podcast, so it would like mm. I wouldn't just retain any of it or even like experience it. Really, I don't know if that's weird, but um, <laughs> that's so funny because I'm like the opposite. Like I feel like all I do is multitask. Like I can't even sit and watch a movie without drawing or. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I just have to always be doing you know, multiple things at once, which probably isn't healthy, but yeah. Well, I, yeah. I, I guess it depends on how you're, however you're wired, you know, it's just, I, wow. I can't even plan my day. Like I have to like make a checklist and um, do one thing at a time. But if I think about, I'm sure many people are like that, but if I think about the eight things I want to do, then I, I get overwhelmed. You know, I don't know if that's related, but yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. But, so I have uh, this band that I thought of just like, few moments before the interview and they're called ponytail do you know them i don't think so i mean i might have heard them but yeah i'm not sure what type of music i listen to but i for some reason i thought as a soundtrack for your painting so or your work just maybe as a as a backdrop if if there has to be one a soundtrack then might be a good good place to start (laughs) yeah i'm definitely gonna look them up after this call now some of the stuff that happened to me this morning, I was looking at more of your work and I just have some notes here I made. And so people mm-hmm. appear to be seeing slash getting your work. And I was wondering if you f- feel that too, like currently, or if you had in the past and how does that feel? Um, and based on the talk slash words surrounding it, and I have some words that I feel like are popping up some, you know, from different sources, which I sort of talked about before. Uh, so I guess, how does it feel to be, um, understood and do you feel like your work is sort of translating 
I mean, it's been really great. I think I was really lucky when I moved to Nashville that, um, you know, a couple of writers here kind of were gravi- gravitated towards my work. And right when kind of when I moved here, they started writing a little bit about it because I had a show. And I, it, it does feel, it felt so gratifying. Like, oh, people understand, I guess, like, you know, what I'm trying to say. Because up until that point, I think a lot of people were maybe kind of like, your work is so weird. Or maybe it was just the people that were seeing it. Um, so I do feel like I have a lot of really great words that have been written, you know, about just that really fall in line with exactly what I'm thinking about. Yeah. Um, which has been really exciting. Um, and it helps me kind of orient myself and kind of how I want to move forward and how I want the work to move forward. Um, which has been great. It's like inspiring, I imagine too. Yeah. It's great to see like when someone writes a review of something and then like some of those same words are in my sketchbook and it's like, ah, (laughs) that's Uh That's awesome. Which is great. Yeah. Uh, I feel like, you know, outside of that or just attached to that somehow, there's a quote from Grace Hardigan, which I've always liked. I guess I'm jumping ahead. I forgot to ask you what your quote was. (laughs) Why don't I do that first if you have one? Okay, I do have one. Um, It's not necessarily an art quote, but I've been reading the book Evocative Objects, which was edited by uh, Sherry Turkle. I don't know if you're familiar with it. No. Um, But there's this one quote in there that I've been thinking a lot about, and it says, the future enters into us in order to be transformed in us long before it happens. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and that it's not written by Sherry Turkle. It's written by Renee Maria Rilke, and I okay. he is quoted in the book. Um, it's a really great book. I recommend it to any artists, particularly sculptors. Um, but that quote has really stuck with me because I think a lot about um, the past. You know, I think about objects, making objects that somehow feel a little dated but current at the same time. And yeah. so that quote has really stuck with me. Now, can you mention the book and the author again? Yeah, it's called Evocative Objects. Okay. Um, and the author is Sherry Turkle. It's, she's really kind of edited it, but she's listed on the cover. Cool. Yeah. I'll just jump in here with a quote, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. Okay. I cannot expect even my own art to provide all the answers, only to hope it keeps asking the right questions. And, of course, that's Grace Hardigan. Yeah, I love that quote. I think about that a lot and kind of ask the work asking questions and not providing any answers and being content with that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that seems to be the theme throughout right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. And I actually think of that a little bit in reverse with your work, how your work is asking questions of the looker and the viewer. Mm -hmm. And, and like there's an exchange that like, there's no pressure on either end from the piece or, or the, the viewer. And, I don't know. I just find that's where the, to me, that nod comes in again. Yeah. It's like someone cracks a joke and then there's laughing involved, but you don't have to explain the joke. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Next up, Amelia talks about objects searched for, collected, and what they mean to her. I grew up in a very rural part of the Midwest and I didn't have a lot of visual stimulation. And so I kind of collected a lot of objects and Some of them were very precious to me. I would carry them everywhere with me, you know. And I do think about that. I think about trying to harness that in my work of trying to, like, create an object that could feel kind of, like, precious or nods to that feeling of something that's, like, beloved and is maybe worn or old. I also get that 
a lot of inspiration from just walking around like vintage stores or like antique stores and finding these discarded objects that were probably at one time incredibly precious to someone and they feel kind of worn and but they seem to kind of hold this this endless like history or life that you'll never really know about i also think about a lot in my work can you like imagine them and like if they're small enough to have come from someone's a young person's like cigar box that they grabbed from their grandfather or some kind of yeah um whether it's like actual wear and tear or just you can imagine uh you know like you were saying like where it's been yeah and also kind of that jolt of familiarity like i don't know if you've experienced this if you you know walking around an antique store where like you'll see a toy from maybe like your generation you know when you were younger and it's just like it just like jolts you because you're like oh my god i I think i had that toy or one of my friends had that (laughs) i love that feeling and i definitely hope to kind of sometimes spark that in a viewer as well like sudden recognition that's kind of foreign though at the same time yeah like you almost forgot about it until you saw it again yeah yeah like you just completely forgot about that time one thing i wanted to ask you about symmetry or asymmetry does do you think that happens naturally with what you're doing or is that something you you choose to do sometimes i have to really think about trying to not be symmetrical yeah and sometimes that's challenging, you know, because we just naturally tend or I naturally tend to make things that are symmetrical. And um, sometimes when I'm like cutting the base for a piece, I really have to stop and say, OK, do not make this symmetrical. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I always even when I do make pieces that are symmetrical, I try for their, like you said, a lean earlier to try to have like to be a little bit off, you know. Yeah. Don't want to make anything that looks like it could have been made by a machine. You know, I want it to feel a little bit wonky. Um. But yeah, I've recently gone up against that because I've been cutting some things for some new pieces and I've had to really kind of try to like get out of that mindset of symmetry. It's cool. I, I feel like you did that with, um, even though it's very symmetrical, The one of the pieces in my world got soft. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's like the first one in the to scroll through. I apologize. I forgot the name, <laughs> the title of it, but it has what you know various it? colors of fur and then it alternates say from the plastic or the painted areas so that that like seems to break up some of the symmetry even though it's a ring really oh yeah that one the um yeah i know which one you're talking about yeah and yeah yeah of course you sent that to me so i'll include that so listeners can seek it out and find what what it is hey listeners the piece we're talking about is titled poly palm be found on otcast.com or amelia's website AmeliaABriggs.com. Yeah, that was one where I think it was starting to become too symmetrical, and then I think I expanded one of those sections to try to make it a little less. So, um, well, it's been great. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I used to listen to your podcast a lot in graduate school, so it feels um, like coming full circle to be on it. So, thank oh, you for cool. well, having I'm, me on. I'm sorry, I'm talking over you now. No, you're fine. I just, I appreciate you taking the time and I appreciate how much time you spend with the work. It's really great. Oh, well, thank you. I really appreciate you coming on. And it's, I have, uh, even though I'm mostly a painter, I definitely like things that are, you know, sculptural, that are wall hung. So it's interesting. And to to meet someone who appears to be a collector is kind of nice too. Yeah. Like of objects, you know. Oh, yeah. Well, you have a wonderful day. You too. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you. Okay, bye. Bye. Big thanks to Amelia Briggs. 
for the good art talk about her work. As we talked about earlier, be sure to check out AmeliaABriggs.com for free downloads of her coloring pages. Also head over to Amelia's online exhibition titled My World Got Soft at Eve Lieb Gallery, May 22nd, and it's up online till June 21st. And that's at EveLiebGallery.com. This has been Oddcast. I'm your host, Philip J. Mellon. Thanks for listening, and keep the dialogue going. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Let me ask you this. Define abstract art. Oh, come on. Okay, here's a better one. What does this painting mean? I'm getting nowhere with this. Forget it. Hotcast Home is A-H-T-C-A-S-T dot com. Thanks again. Sounds like the party's over, but you can still stay connected. For audio, Artcast is on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. Social, Artcast is on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. And let's not forget about Instagram. <laughs>